We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. International speaker, author, and spoken word artist Hosanna Wong joins the podcast to talk poetry, identity, and finding your purpose. Hosanna Wong, right now in her home in San Diego. Thanks for joining us on All That to Say. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. Well, I'm hoping that your world grows bigger so that your thrills get bigger than just this. But we are thrilled, literally, (laughs) to have you here uh, with us. You know, you are no stranger to uh, those of us who produce this podcast as we have seen you live on stage. Uh, not so long ago in Denver, where you brought down the house, and I don't mean that as if it was entertainment, you actually were speaking into people's lives so powerfully that the crowd reacted, I would say, was moved supernaturally in response uh, in a way that someone who was not, shall we say, spiritually tuned might imagine, oh, was this a Broadway show or what? Where just people were so drawn into the moment that that they were... Uh, just lift it up. I, everyone walked away better, Hosanna, uh, because you were on that stage in Denver. So I, I'm just giving that as a setup. We are so thankful to have this conversation with you to understand a little bit more about Hosanna Wong. And you have been a person who is what I would describe in her ascendancy as doors are opening and platforms are shared where your voice is being heard and you have some things to say. So all that to say... Let's dive in. So as you live out in California, and California has especially been hit hard in Southern California by the pandemic over the last year and a half, uh, I know that there have been many restrictions and uh, difficulties and challenges uh, and the roller coaster of the pandemic everywhere in the world, but certainly no more, uh, more pronounced than in California within the United States. And that pandemic role has changed so much. I mean, some people have said it's it's threatened uh, church life, that it will never be the same. Uh, maybe it's thrown some shade on the way in which we think about ourselves and our future and, and ministry. Uh, what's your take on that? Because you've seen a lot of things, you've been a lot of places. Do you have any sense of uh, what's, what's next up for the church going forward? Is there a pandemic... Uh, posture in the future that will never go back to what we used to understand as normative? Uh, do you see it as a problem or a challenge opportunity? What would you say? Well, I do love that you said that the pandemic has thrown some shade because <laughs> I think, yes, it has thrown some shade. And I love the way you put that. Um, I think that this has just been awful for our people, um, people far from God, who, you know, have already been struggling about where they are, who they are, how to interact with God, as well as people within our churches who have never maybe gone through a personal crisis, much less a global crisis, and how to really rattle their faith as well. Those two categories. And then our church staff, staff that has never gone through this kind of attention with each other, this kind of attention serving others, staff that, you know, 
one of the things I would say that my husband and I had the luxury of in the pandemic is that it wasn't the first season of ministry where we've walked through a fire. And it wasn't the first time we were involved with churches going through massive loss and massive hurt. So I, I think that for some leaders, one of the luxuries we had is that it was on our first crisis. So we felt called to the plate. We understood that we could not throw up a bat signal and say, someone else is coming. <laughs> that we knew from experience that we were the people, that the church was the people that was going to answer people's questions in the middle of a global crisis. Um, and so there was a sense of us having to take a deep breath and know that we are called to this moment. God has chosen each and every one of us church leaders for 2020, for 2021, for 2022. And there was a sense of call. But I think for those who had never been through fire in a church or in a ministry, man, it really hurt our people. So my sense is that with every church and every denomination and every kind of ministry, large church, small church, urban church, is that we felt a sense of trauma ourselves in our own family, in our own leadership, and then a sense of leading those that were under us directly, staff, volunteers, and then a sense of the people around us. How do we show people how loved they are, the people who are far from God? And now we're under pressure and regulations and heat and division. There was no way to A plus it. I hope that leaders watching know that, that, that the call that was from God was not to get an A plus, that he knew we didn't go to school for this. Um, but that I think what reignited was a realignment of mission of we are called to be with people where they are, the people in your community, where are they? And who are they? And what do they need? Because there's no program or church series or system that we did 20 years ago that's going to work to answer people's questions right now. So we have got to be asking people questions, finding out their questions and talking to God and finding out his answers to this moment. Now, for many churches, well, our church specifically, we have locations in so many different cities and states. They're not all the same regulations everywhere. You, you're you going to have to be Everything be, is kind be, of customized. Just, it is. Yeah. We can't just be good at systems. Now we have to be good at serving. Mm. And I would say that a lot of churches really rose to that occasion. I think I was more encouraged by churches um, this past year with how we put serving over systems to be with people where they were. We were a mess, but we try to meet people where they were. <laughs> Well, and Hosanna, as you're unpacking your thoughts there, so so sage, I'd say, uh, it's important for our audience to know you are yourself in ministry with your husband. You have a pastoral position yes. in a local church in San Diego, which is uh, a part of a larger uh, network of churches. And you're not speaking just as a person on the curb. You're a person who's had to navigate right. with your husband. What does it mean for a church to survive, to exist, to expand, to fulfill its calling in a world that's been turned upside down? And I so appreciate right. your, your capture of the phrase. You know, you should, be, you should be up on a stage talking sometime. It's not about systems. It's about <laughs> service. I mean, that really, that really speaks, doesn't it? Because it's, it's a default for us in every area of our lives sometimes to just kind of relax back into what we know is predictable and uh, has been experienced. And when the world has become disorienting, it can be very challenging to think outside of the box. I'm hearing you say that you're encouraged that the pandemic for all of its drama has provided some opportunity. Is that fair? 
I'm encouraged by how local churches across the country met people where they were. Um, the church can get a lot of critique um, and, a, and a lot of people have their preferences of how they feel like their staff or leadership did or did not do something. But I travel to churches every weekend. I have for the past 10 years. And I would say that overall, yeah, none of us did this perfectly. None of us got an A plus. We're a mess. But I was mostly encouraged about how many pastors fought for their communities, tried their very best to love people where they were, fumbled through it. There was no way to get an A plus during this. But I saw how many local churches and local staff, you know, now they're doing food pantries. Now they're changing their church series. Now they're preaching messages they've never imagined they'd preach. And their own families were going through trauma mm -hmm. too. And so I, I, I say that, you know, I know a lot of senior leaders, executive leaders, high level leaders in churches are feeling the weight of the world on their shoulders. Like they're doing all they can, but it feels like it's not enough. And as someone who attends churches and loves churches and visits all your churches every weekend, I just think that senior leaders are amazing, that they're still in it, that they still love Jesus and like people and did all they could. And it was an impossible situation. People were dying. People are still dying. People are heartbroken. People are losing jobs and losing hope. And pastors are saying, no one else is coming. And even though I'm getting heat for how I'm leading, I'm not going to stop serving. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm not doing it perfectly, I'm going to keep pushing on. And that's amazing. And that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. So I'm not going to say that there was silver lining to something that killed a lot of people. But I would say that if we don't see how the church stepped up, we missed it. If we don't see how our senior leaders really fought for our churches, we missed it. We weren't watching. And you've identified something so, uh, so important right now. I think many people who are in churches do not always appreciate what their pastors have experienced, carrying the burden oh, or man. making the adjustments, you know, yeah. uh, not understanding what it's like to be in the middle of a uh, argumentative warfare about whether to wear masks or not. I mean, there's so many dimensions to the yes. royal all around us. Uh, I so appreciate your affirmation of those who stay in the game and and who are deeply yes. grounded in a calling that, you know what, I'm following Jesus here and the world of Jesus day was a mess up. My world today mm -hmm. is a mess up, but like Jesus, it's going to be better because I walked through it. And there's so much... There's so much to celebrate, even as there is to wrestle with in these days. You know, Hosanna, you, you have a voice, and already our audience, I think, can appreciate how articulate and engaging you are. And that voice is being elevated. I mean, you're finding yourself, uh, as you just said, you're on weekends going out and about. You're different places. Just before we got on air today, you were telling me a little bit about your itinerary coming up, which is, uh, what shall I say, transcontinental? And what do you think? <laughs> Give me a sense of yourself. What, what has happened to you that suddenly has, not suddenly maybe, but in the last few years has propelled you into a calling and the opportunity to speaking to people in so many diverse places? How would you uh, sense, uh, is it something, for instance, maybe I question restated, is it something like, I dreamed of doing this my whole life and I, I made a plan and here we are, or man, things have just happened that I can't explain? Where are you in between that? You know, I would love for that to be my answer, but I, I do have a sense of, of how some of its opportunities open for me. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I grew up on the streets of San Francisco, as you mentioned. My daddy was a heroin addict, fought in a Chinese gang, and um, he, he, he treated women horribly, men terribly. He found Jesus Christ. Jesus changed his whole life. 
he planted an outreach to those living without homes and battling with addictions on the streets of San Francisco. And that's how I grew up. That's how I learned church. Um, and that's how I learned that Jesus could save and redeem anyone's life. I knew that people's lives could be transformed by hearing and knowing and believing the truth of the gospel of Jesus. So that there was a sense in me knowing because I had seen Jesus transform lives in me. I learned spoken word poetry, as you mentioned, on the streets of San Francisco, um, just because all my friends on the streets did hip hop. So I just did it as my fun, as my joy, as my hobby. When I was 18 years old, my daddy died. And in that sense, I just wanted to do something that mattered, something that was important. I think a lot of people can relate with the tragedy we see on our phones, on our TV screens, and in our own living rooms. We are very aware that our world is broken and needs help. What can we do? Well, even before, when I was younger, I mean, the first time I saw someone murdered in front of me, I was nine years old. I was not new to loss. I had a sense of I have to do something. And the only thing I knew how to do was poems. So once my dad died, I was like, well, I guess I can only do the one thing I know how to do. I'm going to talk about Jesus through poems. And I can pinpoint, I think, why God has allowed me to be a voice in certain spaces to a couple of things. And I would say, I would, I would probably say maybe three things. One is that 10 years ago, I packed my um, life in a suitcases and started traveling the country to talk about Jesus through poetry. I felt like God was calling me to drive the country in my red Toyota Corolla, 1996 red Toyota Corolla, and talk about him through poems. And it was humbling, you know. We, we wanted to talk about strategy, and we wanted to talk about creativity, and I want to, too, because I think the church should be leading in strategy and creativity, so I'm all for it. But the call to be like Jesus is also to come and die, to let go of the things that you have worshipped and exalted in your life and start becoming more like Jesus and worshiping, exalting him and his plans. And so I think a big moment was me leaving my job and the relationship I was in and my plans and saying, I want to make you known and I want to know you for real and going on a journey alone with God where I was living in guest rooms and cots and living rooms and basements and missionary homes and hotel rooms back to back to back. And I said, yes, thinking maybe it'd be three months. It ended up being four and a half years just talking about Jesus through poems, which was kind of embarrassing. Like it wasn't what a lot of people were doing. It wasn't the cool thing I wanted to be doing. So like I talk about Jesus through poems in prisons. Like it wasn't the cool thing that my ego wanted to do, but that alone time with God stripped me down of ego, of, of sins, of, of vices, of, of things that weren't healed in my life. It got me closer to God, made him the only thing I had and the only thing I realized I needed. And I was humbled as I got to share um, poetry through places. So that, that to call to come and die, that God says, if this person will live a life fully surrendered to me, that's the kind of person I want to use. Um, but I would also say that during that time, I, I, I did not love the church. I was deeply hurt by the church. I thought my family's ministry on the streets was the only real way to do church. All these big churches and all their flashy churches, they don't, they don't love Jesus. And um, I was hurt by the church from things in my own childhood, as well as feeling kind of abandoned after my dad died, that we didn't have the same community once the leader was gone. And I was hurt by the church. And I think as I opened up my heart and God stretched my heart to let in community and I lived in living rooms and guest rooms of all these different pastors, creative pastors, worship pastors, executive pastors, ate dinner with their families, 
across denominations, across cultures and sat with them, I just realized like the beauty of the community of the church and what it really looks like to be a Jesus loving, Jesus centered, authentic community. And more than what was possible, I realized that I could be a part of creating the community I longed for, that there are people who will die to themselves for the gospel of Jesus to be shared and love people and accept people in their own homes and their own living rooms, that it was possible and I could be a part of creating it. So being with the local and global church changed my life. I realized what I could be a part of building, even through poems. God used these poems to help me be a part of building. I want to be a builder. Show me how. Here's the one thing I know how to build. So I would say that that something was me falling in love with the church and stretching myself to see the truth about the church. But the second thing I just want to say about, so I think saying yes, when you don't see the next step, mm-hmm. that God wants people who trust him that God is searching the world for people who love Jesus more than their ego and people more than their paycheck, that God is searching the world for people who will trust him more than they trust what they're seeing. But the other thing that I will say, because what, what would be the easiest thing to say is like, I don't know. I just trusted God, but I do realize the the stages I'm on and I do realize the doors God has opened for me. And the truth is this, I think it is because of the people I have forgiven and the bitterness that I have fought to not have while working in the church. I have not had the easiest journey getting to speak in some of these places where maybe I'm the first woman to speak or the first Asian to speak. And there have been times when things have been said to me or things have been taken from me or I've been stiffed or I've been taken advantage of or I've been hurt where I have wanted to quit and moments where I have felt God has showed me how people, how people needed me to forgive them or fight for them or encourage them or speak truth where people didn't know they needed to hear truth. And I would say, and my closest friends and mentors would say that I actually think God has given favor in my life because of the people he's called me to forgive that I've forgiven the things behind closed doors that you won't hear about. And the bitterness that I have fought to say, I will love your church. I will fight for your church. And I'm not going to look at those other people or situations and say, I don't want to be like those people. So I'm going to peace out. But for me to say, when the people that don't know God look at the church, may I say, I'm the people. I love Jesus. I love people. I'm the people. We're going to build God's church. So I would say God has opened doors for me that no man could have opened and no man can shut because I have fought to forgive people that my flesh would tell me I had the right to not forgive and that I have fought bitterness as if it's the thing that will keep me in love with God and in love with doing ministry. Oh man, Hosanna. Well, you just, that is some of the most uh, compelling witness I've heard in a long time. Thank you. And I guess it it strikes me because it, you're speaking so deeply about the power of forgiveness in Christ and the necessity mm-hmm. of that surrender. And honestly, it's one thing to surrender some of my dreams or ambitions. It's another to surrender maybe some of the possessions that I thought were important. It, it might be something to surrender some... Uh, you know, edging towards temptation or placing myself in situations where I know I shouldn't be. I mean, the, the, those are all valid, real deal surrenders. But is there anything more deeply necessary than to give up and forgive someone who has wronged you or has not lived up to the high calling or in some way has, shall we borrow the phrase again, thrown some shade uh, on us or the, <laughs> or, the, or the pathway ahead of us. And to be able to just release that and to trust God, the Lord will, will deal with that. For me, uh, 
I want to be free. And that freedom the yes. Lord has honored. Thank you, Hosanna. I, I'm, I'm just, I, I just have to disclose that earlier today, I was in a conversation where we were speaking in the scripture from a passage that elevated just that. And it, here I am again hearing you say it. I just want to be free. Okay, so you mentioned your dad and you brought up San Francisco. I just have to tell yeah. you, I'm a fan, San Francisco. And by that, I mean not the Giants <laughs> so much or the 49ers. They're okay. Seattle's actually my team's, but... <laughs> But when oh my I was gosh, a, speaking what, of shade, oh, speaking <laughs> of <so> shade. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was a young guy, I grew up in Seattle. And so going down to San Francisco was a big thing. And I spent a lot of time down there. And then I went to law school. And when I was applying for law school, I applied at the Hastings College of Law, University of California in San Francisco, and got accepted. And I actually was all set to go there, uh, made a last minute turn and went uh, to the University of Washington. But my point to that is, there's something about San Francisco that for me has always been kind of romantic and fun and ex exotic and beautiful and all the rest. I know that people have mixed uh, feelings around the world sometimes if they watch San Francisco on the news. But for me, I'm telling you, I just get life walking down the streets. Now, you grew up there and you described growing up there uh, on the streets of San Francisco in a world that may be um, somewhat removed from what many of us could imagine. Your dad, you're telling me... a. a gang leader, a pimp, a, a mm. drug dealer. Um, you are of Chinese origin. Your family uh, is a Chinese American. And I mean, that that's another kind of level of identity, I suppose. As, you, as you've just, with all that mixed up, I want to ask about your dad in a minute, but just right now, given all that, tell me one thing you love about San Francisco. Everybody's there. Mm. All cultures are represented there. We have all the food. We have all the people. We have all the religions. We have all the beliefs. We have every socioeconomic status. Um, I do think it was like a training ground to learn how to evangelize the world by being in a melting pot of people where everyone's there and no one thinks the same and no one looks the same. And it was surprising to me when I got into the church world and headed, you know, to other parts of the country where I realized that we, that that didn't exist, but I was, I'm grateful to have been raised in a place where I assumed we all were um, equally loved by God, had equal opportunity, um, would, would coexist in, 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 in friendship with people who don't think exactly the same. Um, and so I'm glad that I learned that early because I'm finding with some of my other friends and co-workers in ministry for them to learn that. Mm -hmm. is harder than for me to see the other side sometimes. So I'm grateful. I'm highly favored. Um, but also San Francisco needs Jesus. And there's so much, there's the lower class is strong and the upper class is strong. And the middle class is slowly fading. And so it was a good training ground to realize that people are far from God, no matter how much money you have or how little you have. But, no matter what the so view of the bay might be. Is that we're all there. Yep. We're all there, but we all need Jesus. <laughs> and Wow. And as you're describing that, and back to your dad, a very important character and figure in your life. Um, tell us a little bit about his impact on you, his journey, and how that affected you. Just give us some more insight. I mean, I, I can give a lot of credit to my passion for the gospel of Jesus to my dad because he had this extraordinary past far from God and then Jesus changed his whole life and he, he did something with it. You know, he transformed that trauma into something that would transform other lives and he planted an outreach on the streets of San Francisco. I watched my dad preach 
sweat down his face to hundreds and thousands of those living without homes and battling with addiction throughout my entire childhood. Um, I remember when I was about 12 was the first time I saw my dad beat up in front of me. Someone pulled him off the stage. It was like a, a little bit elevated of a brick stage in the and park filled with homeless. Preaching the gospel and pulled off that stage. Oh yeah, we preached. Yeah. yeah, he preached the gospel Tuesdays. At the time, it was Tuesdays and Fridays is when we had church. And it was on like an elevated brick stage in a park congested with those living without homes and battling with addiction. You hear basketball courts on one side. You hear people, you know, rapping on the other side, playing poker and dice on the other side. Then there was this preacher on Tuesdays and Fridays with a little sound system. And maybe about a hundred people without living without homes would come like it was their normal church service. They would come, we would give out food, we give out clothes. And this man grabbed my dad off stage and started punching him and cussing him out. And my dad, you know, was bleeding. I'll never forget. And my dad being bandaged up and then going back on stage and saying, you know, Jesus loves that man and he loves you. And I want to give you a chance to change your life. So you don't have to be the same person you were and leading people to Jesus with blood dripping from his bandage. Afterwards, we definitely had to go to the doctor. He was fine, but he needed some stitches. But I just remember watching him being like, my dad just believed that there was nothing more important than showing people Jesus. And he lived it. And I got that passion from him that there's nothing more important than people knowing how loved they are. So even if someone beats you up, here's an opportunity to show people how loved they are. Even if, you know, he, he, he really just looked for every opportunity for people to know how valued they were. But I will say that one of the difficult things that I got from my dad was this belief that because I saw him do all these extraordinary things, that I had to do something big to do something important that I had to do something impressive to do something impactful. But what happens when I'm 12 and I can't preach to those living without homes and battling with addictions because my testimony doesn't exist. I'm a pretty normal kid. Um, I don't have a, my story isn't that different. What do I do? And I remember when I was 12 or 13, um, I asked my dad, you know, who led you to Jesus? Thinking like, was it as crazy and charismatic as the things I've seen you do, you know? Is there something with God's voice from the sky, something with glitter? Those were the days of Lisa Frank stickers and Mariah Carey songs, so glitter was really big. <laughs> but I asked him, and he told me this story of a woman who led him to Jesus. And he said, there was a woman named Mrs. Lee. I was trying to sell vacuum cleaners door-to-door to get more money for more drugs because door-to-door salesmen used to be the original Instagram influencers. <laughs> they got it done. And he said, she opened the door for me. She invited me in. She invited me to her dining room table. She offered me a glass of water, asked me about my life. I told her about my life and she didn't respond to me with any shock. And she didn't speak to me with any shame. She didn't look for the ways our lives were different. She found the thing we had in common And she told me she also had a void in her life, like me, that she had also looked for years to fill. And she found the answer to her questions. She found the thing to fill that void, and it was Jesus. Did I want the answer to our question? Did I want to change my life? And he goes, it wasn't this big moment. It was a simple prayer and a salesman on one knee on a cold dining room floor. But I gave my life to Jesus. And I know that Mrs. Lee, Mrs. Lee, just doing her normal chores, her normal routine that evening at home, and just inviting someone in who was at her doorstep, Mrs. Lee did not know that five years later, that man would go on to plan outreach to those living without homes and leading hundreds and thousands of people to Jesus Christ. And Mrs. Lee didn't know that over 30 years after that, I'd get to be talking to Jim Lyons, telling you about the day she led my dad to Jesus Christ. 
But that story changed everything for me because it made me see the value of loving the people right in front of you, the value of not ignoring the people at your doorstep. And I decided from that point in my life, yes, I had a passion to share the gospel, but what happens when I don't have a microphone or a platform or a crazy story? I can be someone who's committed to opening doors, having invitations, having conversations, sharing my story, finding things in common with people and letting me use that commonality to say the question we both have, oh shoot, I know the answer. And it changed everything for me to think I might not be able to be like my dad, but I'm committed to living a life like Mrs. Lee. So I think my dad had a big impact in my life in showing me the ways that we can go all in for God and take big steps of faith, as well as reminding me of how important our faithful daily actions are that nobody sees and how life change happens both ways. Absolutely. And, you know, your dad uh, obviously has given you a name and uh, an upbringing life in a way. He's given you the gospel. Um, Mm -hmm. He's passed away, but your identity is in some way always inextricably linked to your family of origin. That's true for all of us. And you talk yeah. a lot about identity. Uh, as, mm-hmm. as you speak, that's a very powerful and compelling theme that Hosanna Wong brings to the fore. And we hear a lot these days about identity. I mean, there's all kinds of headlines and sociological analysis about identity politics and, and the word identity itself I think it's just kind of like floating around now and taking on all kinds of definition and experience as people wrestle with it. But for Hosanna Wong, identity is a core value. Talk mm-hmm. to us about that. Why, why, why does identity matter? What do you mean by that? Well, I think growing up, you want to know who you are. Where do you fit? Do you belong? Are you just the background cast, the supporting cast? cheering on the main characters of the world, what role do you get in this play of life? And I think for me, you know, I battled a lot with knowing I was valuable, that I was important, or like how important was I and how valuable was I growing up? I was the only Chinese kid in my class, only Chinese girl in my class. I remember hating that my eyes were smaller than all of my friends. I would work really hard to make my eyes look bigger with my makeup really before girls my age wore makeup. Mm -hmm. And I remember learning how to curl my eyelashes before I mastered how to tie my shoelaces. Very young. I noticed that I stuck out and I didn't want to stick out. I didn't want to be different. Mm -hmm. It's not cool to be different when you're younger. And, uh, as I got older, you know, there were just things about myself that I noticed stuck out and I thought, Oh, I don't fit the mold. So I want to hide that part. I want to hide my Chinese eyes. Then, you know, my dad had a different background than a lot of my other friends' parents' backgrounds. So maybe I'd try to hide who he was out, even though he became a minister and we'd be invited to lots of gatherings and dinners with other ministers. Our church was different. Our church had mostly ex-convicts and those living without homes. And though I love being with my friends on the streets and they're my family, at the time growing up, when I'm hanging out with all the other pastors' daughters, I don't fit in. My dad's not the same. So I'm hiding kind of what we do out. And I have believed this lie that I have to water down a little bit of who I am in order to be accepted. Well, then I started doing ministry and I continue to believe that lie. But now I believe that I have to water down who I am in order to be effective. I had never seen the last name Wong on a bill before. 
I had never seen it on any of the conference bills. I was being invited at someone that looked like me, someone with that last name. And I don't want my last name to be made fun of the way like it was in school. And I didn't want to stick out. And at the time, as you mentioned, I was not preaching. I was doing spoken word poetry, traveling. And people had pointed out to me, you know, you could pull off not being Chinese. You know, you, you don't have to go you don't have to tell people you're Chinese. You can pull off that you're not Chinese and maybe it would help you in your career if you left that part out. And I believed them because I didn't know who I was. I did not know who I was in Christ and I believed them. And I just wasn't just insecure. Like I'm, 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 I'm insecure. So I'm going to water down myself. I actually thought it was strategic. Like my business side was coming out like, okay, good. I'm going to hide this part of myself. So if you would have known my ministry 10 years ago, you wouldn't know, have known me by Hosanna Wong. You would have known me by Hosanna Poetry. I went by a pen name to keep the last name Wong out. So on every bill, I wouldn't stick out. I just kind of blended in. Hosanna Poetry. You don't really know who she is. You don't really know what she is. I'm more defined by what I do. Poetry. than by who I am. And where I'm from. So I did that for years. And even as I performed poetry or preached on stages, I would try to leave my heritage out, my background out, and my past out, thinking that those would be roadblocks to my ministry being effective. And I know that I'm not the only one that has felt that way. How many of us have felt like we have to water down parts of ourselves so that we are accepted in the places and spaces we feel called to? And I didn't really understand what it meant to be made in God's image. Like I understood that God made me, but I didn't understand the depth of what it means to be made in God's image, a mago day that I kind of look like him, that some of his details are on me, that his image is stamped on me, that I look good this way because I've been made in God's image, that the truth is that I've been made good. The truth is that I've been made also, the Bible says, for good things. My purpose is for good things. And then the Bible says that I'm made for the good of others, that it's actually a good thing that I'm in my family. It's a good thing that I'm alive in 2021. It's a good thing that I get to speak to this generation because I've been made good. I've been made for good things and for the good of others. Now this changes everything for me. Now that I know the word of God, I know that the truth is that I'm made in God's image. I not only have access to know him, but I have authority given by him to make him known. I not only have the permission, but the responsibility to use all that I am to let others know who they are in Christ. This changes everything for me. It changes. Now I go by Hosanna Wong. Now I'll let you know everything God has brought me from. I want you to know the truth of how God interacts with people's real lives that are messy, that are funky. Some parts of my story are too different. Some aren't different enough. Here's the reality of how God uses real people. And I will no longer believe the lie that I have to shape shift into some other kind of mold because I realize that that lie is the lie the enemy wants us to believe. So you and I are not who we fully are. And so we all try to look like one kind of mold that we've presumed. And in that case, that's an evangelistic issue because then we're only reaching one kind of group of people. And ideally, everyone would be who they are and tell their real stories so we could reach every kind of person with every kind of story. So I no longer believe the lie. And I'm passionate about other people knowing who they are and who they are in Christ and also that they were made good for good things and for the good of others. And I'm really glad that you're all here. <laughs> so... I'm hearing you say that 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 realization, that discovery of mm -hmm. of your own identity as a 
gift from God that is destined for good, that that was very empowering for you. I mean, you, that, yeah. that has amped you up. And as you are, uh, I'm thinking about others who may be listening today and they're thinking like, well, I, boy, that, I hear what she's saying. What would you say to someone today who's just wrestling with, but I'm not sure I'm all that or that I get how she sees herself now, but what would you say to someone who's wondering about their own identity or maybe what are some of the challenges or, or the lies that people take in? You've identified some, but yeah. what's the lie that's fundamentally trying to deny us our true self? Well, I think a lot of us believe lies like we're not enough. We're not worthy enough. We're not good enough. It's easy for other people to say, but you still feel like you're the background cast. You're not mm-hmm. valuable. You're supporting the main players. And the enemy has tried to use every situation in our lives and every heartbreak and every device in our pockets and every voice he can to convince us of these lies that we're less than who we really are because the enemy knows how loved you are. He just doesn't want you to find out too because then you'd start living like you were loved. He knows how valuable you are and how powerful your choices are. He just doesn't want you to find out too because then you would start living like you're valuable and that your choices were powerful. The enemy knows how powerful our lives are. So he has this whole plan to make sure that we don't find out. So we don't start living as the child, children of God that we are. And one of the biggest things we have to do is to commit. If we want to fight for, to know who we are, if we want to fight for our identity, it's not going to happen on autopilot. It's not going to happen because the world is not going to just naturally tell us who we are. There's not billboards saying you're a child of God. You are loved. You are made good for good things for the good of others. We're going to have to, intentionally choose to fight for who we are getting God's word. This is a mess. <laughs> getting God's word. I'm always trying to figure out who I am. We're going to have to go out of our way and make God's voice the loudest voice in our lives because God's word has not changed and tells us who we really are. Mm-hmm. Even when there's a global pandemic tells us who we really are. Even when that relationship ends, tells us who we are. Even when we fumble that project, who we are, doesn't change. Circumstances change, but the word of God does not change. Who we are does not change. So I would say for anyone that's doubting who they are, my first question is how often are you hearing what God is saying about you? I, when I, whenever I have been in the darkest places of, of feeling not enough and not worthy enough, I realize it's because I care so much about this person's opinion and that person's opinion. And I'm scrolling on my phone, trying to see what other people's opinions are. I'm feeling defined by my work. I'm feeling defined by my job. I'm feeling defined by what other people think of me, but all these people's opinions are changing all the time. This is exhausting to be running towards a finish line that keeps moving. No. We don't have to do anything in order to be loved. We are already loved and that changes how we live. And so I think that one of the ways that I fight the battle to know who I am is that I am in God's word first, not because I'm spiritual, (laughs) because I'm super broken. And if I open my phone first, I will believe what people are saying about me first. And that's what I'll think about all day. So instead, before I even got on this, before I did anything else, made sure I at least read a little bit about, of my Bible. Yes, some days I have more time than others, but I can start every day there. Sometimes I have more time to read for longer periods of time and more of the Bible than others. But I am never too busy to find out who I am so I know how to live. And so even this morning, knowing what does God say about me, I can overcome trials. I can face adversity. I don't have to have fear. I can trust God. I am safe. I can love other people as if God's love is through me and I have all the love in the world to give. That's what's true. 
And so I just think that um, if you believe you're not enough, it's a lie from the enemy. Don't give him any victory. Fight for your time and fight to be in the word of God as if your whole life depends on it, because yep. it does. The supernatural power of the word to cut through the, yeah. the haze uh, is something I mm-hmm. wholly concur uh, with you. You know, as you were talking, Hosanna, I was thinking about my own life. Sorry, I had to turn it about me, but... I when I when I was a young guy I was I was that guy who wanted to blend in because when people noticed me they made fun of me I was geeky and nerdy and I just wasn't you know I was nobody's favorite character and so I I just tried to blend in I remember buying clothes so I could look like the wallpaper kind of just I, if I was ignored it was a success and uh, now, all these years on, I've, I've, the Lord has called me out of some of that, and I'm much more comfortable in my own skin. And it's really coming home to me right now because I'm a really old guy, Hosanna. So, my 50-year high school reunion was supposed to be last year, postponed by the pandemic till this year. Now it's postponed one more year. Now my high school reunion is saying, we're going to have our 50-year reunion in 2022 and celebrate our 70th birthdays together. Okay, so there I am. But as I'm looking at... <laughs> as I'm looking at Going to my high school reunion, I'm realizing that so much of my early formation was consequent to what those people, what I thought they thought, comparing myself to them, comparing myself to their journey or whatever, and what I might have feared they might have thought about me. And today I I feel so much more liberated to walk into the room and say, hey, I'm here. And it's so empowering in in your life when you have a sense of of God's value for you and the unique identity he's given to each of us and Hosanna thank you for bringing that bringing that to the front of the storyline so often because in the end if people do not know who they are they can never live yeah. completely and and you have been such a great voice for that and you're and as you're doing that Hosanna you you're a young woman, certainly compared to relative terms to some guy like me. You're a young woman who is representative of new generation. You're, you're the future. And I think a lot of people wonder, uh, who are in different generations, how do we interact multi-generationally? And how would people who care deeply about Jesus and uh, following him and impacting the world, how do we speak into a younger generation or a new generation? What are some of the barriers that today may mm-hmm. obstruct uh, the loving telling of the truth? From your point yeah. of view, what, what would you say looking out on the world? Well, my point of view is the right point of view, so I'm the right person to ask. <laughs> I'm actually an expert at all the wrong ways to do it because yeah. I've I've done it really wrong. In fact, you, you you've, um, you've written a book lately, haven't you? Called "How Not to Save the I World," did. <laughs> which is a great I title. Did. Yep. Do I have it? There yes, it is. "How Not I, to Save the I'm World." You. I wrote it because people said write about what you know. And I was like, I know how not to do this. I know how not to lead people to Jesus. I know how not to reach this generation. I know how not to save the world because I've done it so wrong. I've relied on my own power, my own strategies, believe I'm not enough. My story is not enough. And um, I've been aggressive and pushy with my faith. And so you're asking, how do we reach the next generation? What ways are we going to have to think differently if we want the next generation to know Jesus? And I would say, you know, one of the ways I've done it really wrong um, is through the story of my baby brother, Elijah, um, which I, I just 
we never shared before. It's such a sacred story to him, but I got permission from him to share it in my book. So now I'm just going to share it with you, Jim. This is what I did. I did the worst when I was 18 and my daddy died and Elijah was 12 and Elijah didn't, you know, everyone was trying to preach out Elijah cause he's in a, he's in a family of ministers. Uh, and we're all trying to preach out Elijah and I'm trying, I, I ministered to Elijah so wrong. I kept trying to tell him God's going to use us for your testimony one day. And are you reading your Bible? And Elijah, you're raising your hands in church and you need to have faith. And Elijah was 12 and he was really hurt. And I realized that when I was calling Elijah, cause I was seven hours away in college, Elijah wouldn't want to talk to me about anything much less God. All he wanted to talk about was superheroes. And I like liked me superheroes, like in a normal person, liking a normal Marvel movie kind of way. <laughs> but Elijah was like into comic books. You know, when you meet someone who's like yep. into comic books, Jim, it's like a whole other cinematic experience mm-hmm. to watch a movie with them. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is this? That was Elijah. But I just had to realize that I had been so mad at him for not stepping into my world if I wanted to have a relationship with him, I'd have to step into his. So I became obsessed with comic books. We would read comic books together. I would drive seven hours into San Francisco, go to a thrift store, read these vintage comic books together. When Marvel started coming out with movies, I would drive in, wear a Marvel t-shirt with him. We'd get a big thing of popcorn and watch the premieres in San Francisco. We'd make a thing out of it. When my, I met my now husband, Guy, we were dating. He started being into superheroes with us. And All that's to say is that I had been so mad at Elijah. So many times we can be mad at the younger generation for not seeing the world the way we see the world, for not being raised the way that we were raised, to be mad at our daughters, to be mad at our nieces, our nephews, our sons, for not being as healed or as whole as we want them to be. And fighting to be right is the perfect plan of how not to save the world. Hmm. It's a perfect plan of how not to show God's love to your loved ones. And it's a perfect plan of how not to reach this next generation because they want to know if you are with them and for them and they want something real. And that's really good news for Christ followers because Jesus is real and we have the answer to their questions, but fake and facade is not going to work with them. They can see through the facade too well. They want to know if someone will come beside them. I kept sending my baby brother links to my sermon clips. Watch this, watch this. Did you watch this one? But Elijah didn't need a preacher. He needed a big sister. So instead, for years, I just kept this relationship with Elijah of going through comic books. And every now and then I'd ask him, how do you feel about God? And every now and then he'd say, I'm mad. And I would just come with him and say, I'm mad too. I'm so sorry, I'm mad too. Because I, you know, I, I, I done it wrong. And all that to say is that if there's anyone watching that is trying to reach their loved ones for God or a younger generation or their kids or their nephews or their youth ministries for God. And you're weary and you're tired and exhausted because you don't know how to connect with them. I want to give you some hope. Galatians says that we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. And it was 11 years of me having a consistent relationship with Elijah and seeing the world the way he saw it before he came over to our house me and my husband, Guy, we opened the door, sat at a table, a lot like Mrs. Lee and my dad. And Elijah said, I'm ready for the joy you have. I'm ready for the peace you have. I know it's Jesus because you've told me your story a hundred times. I get it. I know it's Jesus. <laughs> Look, Jim, I am who I am. I talk about Jesus loud, consistently. Sometimes I rhyme. It's a whole thing. <laughs> and I didn't have the right words 
because I didn't go to school for this. And I'm sure any Christian freshman at any Christian college could tear apart the exact right words I used or, or how long it took me to lead Elijah to Jesus. Then that moment did not matter when Elijah made Jesus his number one. He said, I pick you Jesus forever. I turn away from my sin. I turn away from my regret. I'm going to follow you forever. And Elijah gave his life to Jesus that day. And then he and I continued to get to know Jesus better by going through the gospels together. And now my baby brother's in love with Jesus. And I know so many times we can get mad at people for not being as whole or as healed as we want them to be. But God was not mad at us when we were far from him. Instead, he sent Jesus to come be Emmanuel, God with us. God with us where we really are. But why would this generation believe us? that the God we're talking about wants to be with them if we don't even want to be with them. Many times our greatest witness will be our withness. How are we coming alongside of people and being with them where they are, knowing their hurts, knowing their questions, knowing why they see the world that way, knowing why they interact on social media that way, knowing your baby brother's favorite superhero. If we want to reveal God's love, we're going to have to be with people where they are. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Christ died for us. And so how do we love like Christ loves? Before they love us, we love them. Before they choose us, we choose them. Before we, they step into our world, we step into theirs. And we're going to have to be better at not fighting to be right, but fighting for relationships and I believe that we have good strategies and we, could, we should keep having good strategies. And we're very creative. We should keep being creative. I also post graphics on social media trying to reach a lot of people. I also love branding things to try to reach a lot of people. But the one-on-one -on -one relationships we will have with this next generation are what's going to be transform people. And we need to make that a priority. Even if you start with one person, this generation will not be reached through systems and creativity. There is no point in putting on a facade to impress a world Jesus has called us to serve. We are going to have to be with people where they are. And that is how the next generation will come to know Jesus. Well, and it seems to me you've just described life with any generation. Isn't it true that, you know, John said in his gospel that Jesus the word became flesh and dwelled with us, you know, walked among yeah. us. I mean, that it's the withness part. It's the God with us. And I guess no matter what our age, uh, a relationship is the key to everything, isn't it? And uh, yeah, as you've described this new generation or this up and coming generation, your generation, you said that Jesus has the answers to the questions asked. What do you think the, the questions are, are that this new generation is asking? I think that God has real answers for people's specific real questions. I think if you just talk to someone at your church, they might have questions about why did God let my parents get a divorce? Then I think you'd have people that say questions of why are these painful things happening across the other side of the world? I think you'd have them have questions of why did God allow a global pandemic? I think you'd have questions like why don't I look like the other girls in my class? I think depending on what one-on-one -on -one conversation you're having, you will have different questions in different cities, in different demographics, in different parts of the country, but God has real answers for all of our real questions. And so in a call to be an ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we, to be an ambassador, we're going to need to be bilingual. 
ambassadors how to be bilingual to know what their leadership was saying and convey it to the other nation they were going to. And we're going to have to be in the word of God to know his answers. And we're going to have to learn the words and ways of those around us and the questions people are asking to give God's real answers to their real questions. And some of us aren't very good at being bilingual. Some of us, we know what God's word says, but we don't know people's real questions or what people are actually going Mm -hmm. through. We want to preach the sermons we heard preached to us 30 years ago. Those sermons may not preach to the girl that lives next door to you. And it may not preach to your youth group. The truths are the same, but the way you're conveying it may not work. And some of us, we are a great hang for people far from God, close to God. We're a great hang for everybody. So we know people's questions, but we're not in the word of God. So we don't know his answers. So I'd say this generation has lots of questions about where is the church when people are hurting? Where is, what is the church doing when people are saying mean things about other people? And sometimes the church is doing and saying a lot of things and those people just don't know. So that's not a critique on the church. So, but there are real answers to their real questions. What is the church doing? Could we tell them what the church is doing? Why did God allow this? Can we tell them what God is like and what God's intentions are and how loving he is? Do we know? And I think that um, you can't Google what is this generation asking. I think you're going to have to, um, you know, send less sermon links and send more invitations to coffee and ask people what are their questions? Because the truth is, I don't know a lot of the answers. When I am talking to this generation and people even younger than me, Jen, when I'm asking people (laughs) questions, um, they have questions I don't know. And I'm very open to say, I don't know. Let's let's figure that out together, you know? Um, You know, my daddy died when I was 18, but my parents loved each other. So I I don't know what it's like to be a child of divorce. That sounds like a whole other world change and awful. And I don't know the answer. So me and you, we're going to go through this book in the Bible together. We're trying to see what God's answers are to your real question. I know he has real answers. I just don't know that off the top of my head. But that is why I think I have a lot of relationships with people far from God and young people, because I'm also very quick to say, I don't know. And they don't want to be impressed. They want to be seen. They want to be known. They want to know they're not alone. It's actually freeing to them to know someone that knows God and likes God and is all about Jesus and has hope and joy and freedom and is fearless, but doesn't know everything. My friends are very aware that I'm not a very spiritual person. There's all these questions they have that I don't know, but I know Jesus has the answer. And so I just think that finding commonality with people is more powerful than we could ever imagine saying, we both have that question. Let's find God's answer, not being a know-it-all, not having to know everything, but saying, I know Jesus has an answer. So let's figure that out together. And sometimes I'm in the middle of this not knowing you know, I, I don't know how to pray for senior leaders right now, man. I, my heart hurts for how many of my friends feel overwhelmed. So I'm in the word of God figuring out how do I pray for them and how do I serve them? You know, I'm, I'm trying to help write a few sermon outlines for some senior pastors right now because they have to lead so many people. And yet, you know, preaching is one thing they do, but it's not, the, it's not even most of the time they do. And so I've been going to more churches in this season, preaching for pastors on weekends on a consistent basis so they can lead well. God, how can I serve? I don't know how to serve. How, how God, I'm reading the word. I'm asking him, I'm asking people, Hey pastor, how can I serve you in this season? Um, I don't know everything and none of us on here do. So asking people questions, asking God questions and being in his word, this is how we can be with people and see people brought to new life through Jesus Christ. It seems like um, 
connecting to our common humanity, which actually is in some way disclosed by our questions. I mean, what else in the whole of the created order asks questions? Only people do. That's cool. And that's a place where each of us can connect. And even if we find different answers, and I believe there are there is an objective truth in Christ that uh, it doesn't have a competitor in the answer game, but people may come to a different conclusion yeah. than I have, but I can still maintain that relationship and and still be a voice in their life as they can be in mine as I as I live in a world of questions with them. And the authenticity of described was that yeah. I think that's part of what your anointing is is a, is a certain quality of authenticity. You you live and breathe legitimately and honestly what you speak, and what you speak has taken the form of the spoken word or poetry. I mean, we began this story with you uh, describing how you as a young person wanted to communicate using poetry, and uh, that's developed mm -hmm. into this spoken word ministry. And when, I, when we say that, I think people will get poetry. Some people have a sophisticated view of poetry and understand it's not always a tenor and rhyme, uh, but others may have a, a more limited view of poetry. When we talk about the spoken word as a kind of genre of communication. I'm not yeah. sure people really know what that means. How would you describe that? What 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 is the spoken word ministry that you uh, talk about? Yeah. I think people are mostly familiar with poetry as written poetry. Mm -hmm. And so spoken word poetry is just poetry that's written to be heard as opposed to being read. Hmm. So it's poetry that's meant for the stage as opposed to the page. If the poetry in you is one dimensional and the poetry on the page is two dimensional, then spoken word is poetry in 3D. It's poetry written to be experienced. So when I would write written poetry, maybe I know someone's gonna read it slowly and they're gonna be able to analyze it and critique it and absorb it at their own pace. When I'm writing spoken word poetry, it's meant to be heard to be clear, to be quick, process fast, because you have about three to seven minutes to say it and for people to process it and understand it. So it's a different art because it's meant to be heard. Um, it's more like speaking song lyrics. <clears throat> so that's how I would probably describe it, kind of a mix between, you know, Anne of Green Gables and Tupac. If you put them together, it's like oral storytelling. Sometimes it rhymes, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's to music, sometimes it's not. Like any art, there's many genres of it. And mine is kind of storytelling mixed with some like poetic prose, maybe a little bit of preaching in it too. Little, little mixed melting pot. So two roads diverged in a yellow wood and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood. All right, so the, there's the kind of elegant, elegant Robert Frost, but it's not necessarily spoken word because even as I'm reciting it to you, I see it on a page. I don't experience mm -hmm. Robert Frost delivering it to me. What you've just described sounds yeah. like the art and, and communication can be art as well as truth. It's an art that communicates truth in a way that is immediate and very much more integrated into the person delivering it. In other words, I'm going to experience your spoken word poetry uh, as I experience you. You're projecting it in yeah. real time. Yeah. I've, I've seen some of that. Uh, and, and I know that spoken word, in a way, you are a spoken word artist all the time because you're, you have a certain cadence and a certain artistry to your just ordinary conversation mm -hmm. that I've witnessed in this uh, podcast today that 
that is art, Hosanna. You might say, well, my, my spoken word ministry is a lot like I talk. I, I get that. But is, is yeah. there anything, is there a phrase or two that you could give us that would kind of jump out as, this is spoken word. This is, this is my, my poetry being presented in 3D. Yeah, um, I can do like um, a spoken word I'm known for. It's called I Have a New Name. It's on identity. And it's all the names that we hear that are lies that hold us back from being who God's created us to be. But then there's all these names in the word of God that are truth about who we really are. And so I quote all those scriptures in it. And then at the end I say, I'll do a little part for you, Jim. Okay. At the end I say, the enemy has no power here. Perfect love cast out all fear and perfect love has named me and you. So what is your new name? What is stirring up inside of you? When you hear these words that his word, that the word has proclaimed, what do you know is the name God is calling you? Maybe it's not the name you grew up with. Maybe it's not the name your old friends associate you with. Maybe it's not the name that your whole life you were used to identifying with, but it's the name you now answer to. So when the enemy tries to get to you, it's just the name you enter introduce yourself with. As for me, my name is forgiven. My name is free. My name is brand new, loved, wanted, child of God, created with a purpose. And it's been a pleasure to meet you. So, so powerful. I mean, honestly, thank you for just giving us that snippet of a larger uh, piece of spoken word that honestly, You'd have to be a stone not to be able to feel it and wonder about it and actually come to a point of decision about it. Thank you, Hosanna. And I just have to, before we close, I, I want to just pull something else out that stands out to me in our conversation. And maybe it reflects my own bias because it's something I deeply believe. But you talk often, of course, about Jesus and also the enemy we're in a world of a contest, yeah. aren't we? Uh, there is a <laughs> there is a tension between right and wrong, and 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 life and death, and and good and bad, and heaven and hell. There there is an enemy who seeks to twist and detour and to destroy, or, or as Jesus said, to rob, steal, and destroy. There is that that guy, that being, and. That informs your view of the world, it seems to me, that you have aligned yourself mm. with a greater God that we know is prevailing, but you're also not blind mm. to the reality that we have to be careful. Am I reading mm. you right? Yeah. I think, you know, when reaching people far from God, people aren't sure about this church thing and they're not sure about this God thing, they're not sure about this Jesus thing. But my guess is that everyone has had a moment in their life where they thought for sure someone was fighting against them. <laughs> and if they ever thought that they were right. And that is how I like to come to people who aren't sure about God is to find this commonality of, have you ever been sure that someone was fighting against you? You were right. But that person was not God. And he's not against you. He's for you. And so while there's this force that's trying to, tell you who you are not and what you're not capable of and all the things you can't do. There's someone else who wants to tell you who you are and how loved you are and all the things he has for you. And I want you to know that the person against you has not been God. It's been the enemy of your soul. 
don't let him win. Don't you want to be who you really are? And I see the world that way because I think that it is, um, it is more true to have people far from God feel they're not sure about someone who is so for them and loves them so much. Perhaps they've had no experience with a parent who is so loving or a mentor who's so loving or a friend who's so loving. They more have experiences with feeling like things are against them. So I can identify to them. There has been someone against you this whole time. And we want to take the victory out of his hands. Do you want to take the victory out of his hands? So I see it that way. And I think um, I continuously see it more that way. The more I'm just with people who are far from God, um, it seems to be more something we have in common that they see the world that way. It's our humanity. Uh, we, we've mm-hmm. all experienced just what you've described. Hosanna Wong, I am so thankful for this chance to visit with you. You make every room better, every conversation brighter. I'm looking forward to seeing you again someday. Thanks so much for coming alongside. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to know you, to be a part of your ministry, your community. I had the best time when we were in Colorado. I'm having the, just the best time knowing that we're speaking to so many people who want to be encouraged because they love Jesus for real and want to know him more. And it, it is really an honor. I know you said I need to have a higher standard for thrill, but I got to say, I have a pretty good standard for thrill. And this was pretty good. Hey, it was pretty what? good. You know what? <laughs> I'm taking you at face value. Thanks so much, Hosanna. And, and truth be told, our audience today has a lot of people, I'm certain, who aren't sure about that Jesus thing. And I just want to say to everyone today, yeah. thank you for joining us on All That to Say today. And you know what? We want to encourage you to go to YouTube and subscribe, and you'll get more great content like this. I want you to know that we are so glad you joined us. And Hosanna, as we're walking out today, I want to thank you for making available to us uh, a video of one of your spoken word pieces that is a great, great way to end our conversation that just talks about who we are and who we can be. Hosanna, God bless. Be encouraged. Safe travels. Talk soon. Take care. God spends a lot of time in the Bible telling us who we are. It's almost as if he knew that we would doubt who that was from time to time. It's as if he saw it coming, that we'd spend our whole lives searching for what our identity, what our real name was, and that there'd be many moments in our lives where we'd let different kinds of names define us. When we've looked in the mirror, compared ourselves to pictures and heard the name ugly, when we've been left by loved ones, people we trusted once and heard the name unworthy, when we've been drowning in discouragement, living in a seemingly never-ending crisis and heard the name forgotten, when we've had our hopes up and our hearts open only to be brought down by closed doors and we've heard rejected, when we've looked for infinite affirming love through lesser physical fleshly versions, when we gave it away, or when it was stolen and we heard impure, we heard garbage, when we go to other vices to ease our pain and we hear addict, we hear forever broken, when we feel like we're living in the shadow of someone else's calling and we hear second place when our pain cripples us to a point where we don't even know how to let others in and we hear lonely when our past seems too gross for others to forgive and we hear disgusting, it's overwhelming 
these voices were constantly hearing it suffocating this air of constant hate, critique, and comparing. And it's sort of amazing the people whose voices I've allowed to name me. The power I've given to my past, to my mirror, and to my surroundings, and enabled them to identify me. The amount of years I've spent living up to whatever others say over me. But God, says something else about me. It's like he knew there would be other voices, so he wrote his voice down in a timeless book of truths that would remind us over and over again in the moments when lies would block his truths and somehow make us forget. So I'm going back to the source, not the people I've allowed to represent God to me, but the actual, literal, tangible words that he has written down for me. And there's some other names he's given to me john 15 15 he calls me friend first thessalonians 1 4 he calls me chosen ephesians 2 10 he calls me his workmanship he calls me his art he calls me handmade he calls me purposed and fashioned for good things first corinthians 6 19 he calls my body a temple he calls it the residence of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, he calls me his messenger to the world. Galatians 3.26, he calls me his child. Romans 5.8, he calls me greatly loved. John 8.36, he calls me free. Free indeed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he calls me brand new. And it's amazing how different these names are from the names I'm used to listening to. And in my journey to discover who I really am, in my battle to uncover the truths of myself, I've learned something new about my name. And now this is what I am certain of. My name is not the name the world calls me. My name is not the name my past calls me. My name is not even the name my own mirror calls me, but my name my name is the name I choose to answer to. And I can choose today from this moment forward to answer to a new name. When I hear lonely, that's not me. When I hear disgusting, that's not me. When I hear unworthy, I don't even look over my shoulder. When I hear broken, they must have confused me. Please look elsewhere. When I hear ugly, abandoned, useless, forgotten, I figure someone just has to remind them maybe those were my old names but they're no longer the names that I respond to my name is the name I've chosen to spend my days living up to and if these other voices are not saying the same thing that the truth is I look in my mirror and I repeat this they have no right to be speaking to you when you stop answering to all your old names, they stop having power over you. The names that my father, eternity's author, the world's creator has called me are the only names that I respond to. So when I hear friend of God, that's my name. Chosen, that's my name. Loved, wanted, created with a purpose, that's my name. God's messenger, that's 
be looking for me. Greatly loved, you must be calling for me. Brand new, that is my name. And that is a name that I will respond to because the enemy has no power here. Perfect love cast out all fear and perfect love has named me and you. So what is your new name? What is stirring up inside of you when you hear these words that his word, that the word has proclaimed? What do you know is the name God is calling you? Maybe it's not the name you grew up with. Maybe it's not the name your old friends associate you with. Maybe it's not the name that your whole life you were used to identifying with, but it's the name you now answer to. So when the enemy tries to get to you, it's the name you introduce yourself with. As for me, my name is forgiven. My name is free. My name is brand new, loved, wanted, child of God, created with a purpose. And it's been a pleasure to meet you. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.